you turn over to Isaiah 40 towards the end of the chapter and also find Psalm 137, which is the context of this marvelous sermon that Isaiah preached, then you'll be in the right place of Scripture. I suppose Isaiah 40 is one of the most famous passages of Scripture from the book of Isaiah. Begins, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. And that's what we've been thinking about, how God is able to do that. He is not a God who is a deity, who is fierce and unapproachable. He is imminent, that means he's here, as well as eminent, which means everywhere else. (laughs) He's able to do both. I remember talking to my mother years and years ago, and she found it very difficult to conceive of a God who is imminent, a God who was actually here. And she said, why do you bother him with these little things that you pray about, Jill? God is too big. She had a great concept of the awesomeness of God, the size of God. But she found it very difficult to believe he was bothered about our daily doings. I, I was struggling to try and explain this to her, and she loved roses. She was learning roses. She was learning the details. And as I walked around her garden with her and she was telling me these absolute infinite details, I said, how can you not believe in a God who is interested in the details? If he's so interested in the differences and the variety of all these things, how could you not believe that he is interested in the immediate as well as in the bigger things? The end of the chapter of Isaiah 40, it says this in verse 25. God says, To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Not only does he know the roses and have his own name for them, he knows each star and has a name for them. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. And I put in the Margin of my Bible, he never loses anything. He never loses his keys. God never loses his keys. Isn't he wonderful? (laughs) I have lost my keys again. I'm blaming my grandchildren, but this time I think it's me, not the grandchildren. But I'm always losing things. And God never loses anything. He calls each of his stars. He always knows exactly where he put them. They come out every night, and he knows where they are, and he calls them by name. He has this interest in the little things like you and like me. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Don't you know, haven't you heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Now, as we know, this is written, or this was preached to the people who were in Babylon. And if you turn back to Psalm 137, this is the context of Isaiah 40. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, or the willow trees, we hung our harps. 
For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill and my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I don't consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you've done to us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the stones. Now then, we're going to talk about joy. Joy when it's the last thing you could conceive of in a particular situation that you might find yourself in. Sing us one of the songs of Zion, their tormentors, their captors said. Go on, sing us a song. What about a chorus or a hymn? You're supposed to be rejoicing even in trouble, aren't you? How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? These people were supposed to know the joy of the Lord. Joy, hope, strength, they all go together. The joy of the Lord is my strength. But they'd lost it. Now, there's a man called Telehard de Chardin, and he wrote this. Joy is the most infallible proof of the presence of God. Joy is the most infallible proof of the presence of God. And there is no question about it. There is joy in knowing God. When Christ is living in your heart by his Spirit, the infallible proof of that is a joy. Joy when things are all wrong on the outside because everything's right on the inside. And yet it is true that people of God lose their joy. I'm not always joyful. You're not always joyful, if we're honest. Why? Where does it go? What does it take to chase the joy of God away from our lives? We can lose our joy, and these people had lost their joy. They had not lost their God. They had lost their joy. Now, let's just get the picture. God's people, refugees by coercion, slaves of cruel masters, far away from home, with only bad memories for company. Fortunately, however, their pastor was with them. Now, he was far away from home, too. He was sitting by the waters of Babylon along with the rest of them, but there was a difference. If we look carefully, every tree in sight was festooned with harps, except the one under which Pastor Isaiah was resting after a hard day's slave labor. There he was, harp in hand, singing a song. It was a message from God for his discouraged people, and it started with the words, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, and it ended with the words, Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength, soar on wings like eagles, run and not be weary, walk and not faint. It was a beautiful song. It was a God song. It was a song of Zion. And the Babylonians who were around must have thought they'd never heard such a beautiful song in all of their lives. And it made them yearn for something, and they didn't know quite what. Something this man, this holy man among the captives of Israel had that they didn't have. And the rest of the Israelites didn't appear to be enjoying. Now, we know what that was, don't we? We know that Israel had lost touch with the source of life, joy, God himself. Yet Pastor Isaiah had come close enough to be forgiven and stayed close enough 
to be comforted and strengthened. He'd learned to wait. He'd learned to wait on the Lord for all that he needed to be a blessing to his hurting world. Believers and non-believers alike, Israelites and Babylonians alike. But the Babylonians were a rough bunch to deal with, just as they are today. And they represent our lost world. The third of our world, so we're told, who have never heard of such thing as a relationship with a holy God through Christ's redemptive work on their behalf. People who live, as the hymn says, as if no Christ has shed his precious blood, as if they owed no homage to their God. So Israel's Babylonians were a rough bunch and a cruel and cynical bunch. Go on, they said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And they weren't a bit surprised when the Israelites replied bitterly, how can we sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land? Now, of course, the Babylonians knew the answer would be just that. They knew all along that no one feels like singing when they've seen their parents murdered, houses pillaged, and infants' brain bashed out on the cobblestones. Who's going to sing a song at a time like that? But then they heard it, a harp. An old man with fire in his eyes, singing, singing one of the songs of Zion. It's a beautiful song, a song of comfort, a song of hope, a song about a shepherd gently leading those with young, a song about eternity and a God who inhabited it, owned it, and was offering to share it with those who would put their faith in him. And today the Babylonians are listening to us, just as surely as they were to Isaiah. And they're watching those of us who profess to be God-lovers, And they see our husbands and wives die, our children rebel. They watch our parents get sick, like they get sick. They observe us as we lose our jobs, are displaced, are on welfare or mistreated. And the way we respond to suffering preaches a more powerful sermon than any religious silver-tongued rhetoric could. The Israelites had an incredible opportunity to use the pressure of their circumstance to wait on the Lord, to wait for a song to sing to the Babylonians. But look at their body language, their exhausted faces, their bitter mouths. Their devotions dried up. Their speechless, songless, loveless, hopeless, and harpless, hapless, hopeless, harpless, harpists. They need comfort and encouragement first and challenge before they can be used to bless and help Babylonians. The old man with fire in his eyes knows it. And he says, have I got a message for you? Wait on the Lord. That's the answer. That's the secret. There's joy in that. Joy to be found. Strength to be found for everybody. There's a wonderful song in this very room. In this very room, there's quite enough... How does it start? Quite enough love for all the world? In this very room, there's quite enough joy for all the world and hope for all the world. But I was in a conference and the soloist sang that. It was very moving because it was, a, it was a meeting of leaders from all over that area. And this gal stood up and sang it a cappella, just a beautiful voice, young voice. And uh, I looked around and I thought, it's true. In this very room, there's quite enough hope, quite enough love, quite enough joy for all the world. And in all those people, even though they had gone through so much trauma, there was quite enough love and joy and hope because they had the secret. They knew there was a God who could make the difference. And there was quite enough joy for all the world, but there was only one man singing. One man. An old man. A tired man. 
a man who was far from home and yet a man whose heart was bursting with the joy that he had to share and the love that he wanted to share. So, even though they were waiting in God's waiting room, I often love to say, in God's waiting room, God is waiting for us to wait. He's waiting for us to wait on the Lord. Not to wait on the answer to our prayers, not to wait in worried knots of notness, expecting God to do things before we'll listen to him. Wait on the Lord, not the answer to your prayer. Just go away quietly and wait. Just sit and learn to listen for the wind of the Spirit, which will lift you up above your dreadful days, your mundane days, and you'll help to start to cope with hope. Now, I want you to imagine yourself one of those men or women sitting under your particular weeping willow tree, having hung up your harp, okay? Hung up your joy. We're going to talk about all those different trees. Which tree have you hung up your harp? Where did you lose your joy? Where did you lose your joy? I remember counseling a girl not too long ago. She'd lost her joy. And she said to me, I want you to help me to get my joy back. So I said, where'd you lose it? She said, that's not important. I said, it's probably vital. (laughs) Where did you lose it? Well, it really isn't important. Just show me how I can get rid of this guilt and shame and depression and everything else and get my joy back. So after a bit of prodding, I got the story out of her, and she'd moved in with her boyfriend, and that's the day she lost her joy. Who was surprised? That's where you lost it. Then that's where you need to go back. That's where you need to go back to. Sometimes we've just lost our joy on the sin tree. That's all there is to it. That's where it is. You know, there's a story in the Old Testament about a man in a Bible school, and the Bible school was prospering, and so there wasn't room for people, and so Elijah said, well, let's go and build another Bible school, and so they all went out. No, it wasn't Elijah, was it Elisha? I can always get those two mixed up, but it was one of them, Elisha. They went out, and they began cutting down trees. And as this man with enthusiasm started cutting down the tree with a borrowed axe, the axe head whipped off and fell in a pool of water. And he came running to the prophet and he said, alas, master, it was borrowed. Now, you have to understand that an axe was like a computer in those days. It was the most valuable thing that you could possibly own, a good axe. And he'd borrowed this implement. And now the axe head, the most important part of it, was in the lake. And the prophet said, where did it fall? Come and show me. And he said, that's where it fell. And the prophet took a stick off a tree and he threw it in the water just where the axe head had fallen and the iron swam, came up to the surface. And he said to the man, put out your hand and take it to you again. Now there's a little parable in there. You're going along, you're all enthusiastic and you're getting the Lord's work done and suddenly... You lose your cutting edge, which is your joy. The cutting edge of the Christian life is your joy. That's the distinctive of a Christian. And what God wants to do, maybe through somebody else, is take you back to where you look. Where did you lose it? And you've got to say, there. I lost it the day I moved in with my boyfriend. 
I lost it the day this, or I lost it the day that. That's where I lost it. And then God applies the stick, the tree, the cross, the blood of God to that place. What he did on the cross has an effect on actions and mending of actions that we do now. And so he applies everything that he worked out for us in our redemption and everything that's involved in knowing him to the place we lost our joy and the iron swims and then we have to appropriate it. We have to put out our hand, take it back. We have to take actions. We have to put things right if we can. And then the joy will return. So it could just be like many of these Israelites that they had hung up their harp on the century and then you don't sing too many songs. You've forgotten your goal, your focus, which is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. little boy that was doing his catechism once thought that said, glorify God and endure him forever. And they had to say no. <laughs> and yet that's what some Christians look like when you look at their faces. Glorify God and they're enduring him forever instead of enjoying him forever. The gold tree, if you wish. Lost it right there. What about the grief tree? These people were in grief. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. This is the weeping willow tree. How can we sing a song of the Lord when we're in grief? Well, you can. If you wait in the waiting room, wait on the Lord, he will give you a song. It will be in minor key. But who said something in minor key isn't beautiful? And if you wait on the Lord, you will find that joy will come in the morning. And after you've wept a long time, you will have a song to sing. I was in Holland in Europe some years ago, and an elder in a church said to me, my daughter has fallen in love with a girl. I have wept until I can weep no more. I lost my joy. It was easy to see where he lost his joy, and it was easy to see why he lost his joy. Up in Canada, I talked to a pastor's wife about my age. She was in tears. She said, my daughter was having a baby. Now she's had an abortion. I feel I've had one too. And she'd lost her joy. There are many, many reasons, not least something happening to one of our children. These people had seen their infants who were not able to make that terrible journey from Jerusalem to Babylon, just literally picked up by the soldiers and killed against the stones. And when you've seen something like that, it takes a long, long time to work through the grief. Where's the joy? The joy's in God, not in the joy of what's happened. And I have been with people who have seen that and worse not too long ago. I don't know if we've hung up our harp on the grief tree. Wait on the Lord. And even as you rock back and fro, just nursing your sorrow, he'll give you something to sing in minor key. But it's how you respond to this particular situation that the Babylonians are watching. Make no doubt about that. When I was lying in a hospital bed, unsaved, and the girl next to me was very, very sick, I was the Babylonian. She was the Israelite. I watched her. There's a verse in a hymn in England, and it says, look, they are waiting, looking at you, furtively watching all that you do. And I furtively watched all that believer was doing. 
because I wanted to know what made her tick and what made her sing. Because even though she was desperately ill and in pain, she sang a song. I don't know if any of you remember a lady called Carmen Collins. She was an artist. She drew beautiful roses and flowers and things. She was a dear, dear friend to me. She was an aunt to my children. She was a neighbor. She was the first, one of the first neighbors I met when I came here. She was not a believer then. She came to faith in the women's Bible study. Six women in my home. That's where it all started. And one of them was Carmen Collins. And she became a good friend to me. And I well remember the day that she got cancer or was diagnosed. And I well remember sitting, looking at her, thinking, no, 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 I won't believe it. I cannot believe this thing has got away on her and there's no hope and no help. And that was the situation. And she came and heard our speaker speaking on Daniel, who was in a foreign land. But Daniel sang a song. Daniel loved the Babylonians who had emasculated him. He was a eunuch at their hands. He was a young man. He was taken as a prince and given to Nebuchadnezzar as one of his aides. And what did he do? He loved young Nebuchadnezzar, who was probably about his own age. And he started to try and win him to Christ. And he witnessed to him. And he interpreted his dreams. And he told him about the God of heaven. And Nebuchadnezzar was converted to Jehovah. Very dramatic story. Read about it in Daniel chapter 4. And Daniel set himself through the reign of three kings to love the Babylonians, to stand up for his God, and to sing them a song. And after that sermon, Carmen wrote me a beautiful letter. I can't read all of it to you, but she just said this. I just wanted you to know I'm doing well. And she was busy dying. And just continue to pray ceaselessly. I feel as Daniel, I'm in a strange land with this cancer. I've existed in a healthy land for so many years, and it's all so new to me. But I'm learning so much through it, not only about the medical part, but the spiritual as well. It goes on and on and on. And I continue to absorb all that God has to teach me as if I were a sponge. I am still sitting at his knee. And oh joy, it's all right. Oh joy, it's all right. I remember Karma calling Stuart and I into her house 10 days before she died. She had just come back from the hospital. She said, the doctor's given me about two weeks. She said, Stuart... I want you to do the funeral. Jill, I want you to write a poem and give it. I looked at her aghast. <laughs> I said, I can't do that. How can I do that? But then how could I not? And so that night, God gave me some words that somehow I managed to use at the funeral. But the thing about it was, she said, I want you to come back on Sunday because I have called in my entire family. She called them all in. I think there were over 35 people. Some came in from Germany. Some came in from Germany. She put them all up in hotels all around the house. And then she had them in at half-hour intervals on their own because she wanted to talk to every single one of them about the great day. That's what she wanted to talk to them about. I said to her, what's this great day? She said, the day I die the day I die. She said, I want to tell every one of them about the great day. And she did. 35 or over, <laughs> I don't know. And then she decided she'd have a photo. So she put them all in her bedroom, all over the bed, and sat there in the middle of them. And she had a photo. And if you could see this photo, I have it. She has this smile. She had a gorgeous, she was the most beautiful woman 
Absolutely gorgeous woman. The smile on her face, you would have thought that she was celebrating her daughter's wedding or something or other. And all the relatives are standing there, you know, absolutely. <laughs> Stunned. <laughs> what is all this about? But I tell you that that gal went to heaven in a fiery chariot. She did. She just, whoosh, you know, took off. It was absolutely incredible. And on the day of her memorial service, the funeral home was festooned with every piece of art she had ever painted. We took it all from her house and her studio, and we just decorated that funeral parlor. And right in front of the pulpit, we put her big pierce, this gorgeous, just rose, this huge, great canvas. And I told them in my poem about how Karma was watching Jesus paint a rose and all the things that he was doing for her. It was a very joyous funeral. Incredible. Carmen Collins did not hang up her harp on a grief tree. She refused. Well, what about the gripe tree? You're a complaining sort of person. You know the Bible says, when I complained, my spirit was overwhelmed. Do you gripe a lot? Do you grumble? I think Christians are grumbling a lot. I really do. Not just Christians. Obviously, Babylonians grumble as well. But, but Christians grumble. Nothing's right. And I don't know what they're grumbling about, to tell you the truth. I have no idea, but you'll always find something to grumble about. And what God says, don't hang up your harp on the grumble tree. Oh, Jerusalem, if only I was in Jerusalem. Some of you are saying, if only I hadn't moved from south up to Milwaukee. And some of you are saying, oh, if I was only somewhere else. If only I could move house. If only I could move job. If only I could move friends. But the, the, there's all these gripes inside us. You'll lose your joy. If you wait on the Lord, remember the content of contentment is Christ. You'll find that he'll settle you down. And you will be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I was in Seattle, and I preached three times in the biggest church there on Sunday morning. It was absolutely wonderful. And we commissioned a family to go to India to, on the border of Nepal to do medical work. He was a young doctor. She was young, vibrant, young wife. They had adopted Korean child who was their eldest and adopted American child who was the next. And then they had one of their own. And they are taking this very unusual, wonderful family, those three little children, up to the north of India, which is not a place that you would want to go, I can assure you. And they are going to give their lives up there to do the thing that God has called them to do. It's very moving. And it was wonderful because they commissioned them each of the services. They were well and truly commissioned. And so we went through that three times. And he talked about the 12 suitcases they were taking, just two apiece or whatever it was, and the, the congregation had bought them the suitcases and they'd helped them with all these things. And it reminded me very much of the 10 suitcases we had brought here because the church asked us to sell every, everything up and just come with two suitcases apiece. I talked to the young man, young man in between services. I said, was it hard to sell up and do this? And he said, well, it wasn't too hard. It wasn't too hard. And I said, I remember doing the same thing. You know, you, you sell so much and you give so much, and then you still have half a house full of junk you can't sell or give. It's incredible. You try it. 
moving house is one thing, but selling it all up and giving it away and putting it into a suitcase is another. We had one suitcase for our clothes and one for anything else we could get in the suitcase. Just pushing and shoving all the things that were very special that we did want to bring. And yet, you know, as that young couple gave testimony, the joy was absolutely incredible. Here he is. He's a specialist. He could stay here and he could make all the money in the world. And their children could have all that America has to offer. But they're going because God has called them. And yet there was this spirit of contentment about it. And I thought, if only more people could hear a song like this and see, because everybody's after contentment, thinking that things are going to give it them, right? A new this or a new that or the latest the other. And that's not going to do it at all. And what about the grudge tree? Maybe you've hung up your harp on the grudge tree. And the Edomites were their brothers, you see. They were related to Israel. And the day Jerusalem fell, they helped. And they went into the houses and they said, I'll show you where there's an Israelite uh, hiding under the bed. Dragged them out and got them executed. And then they stood and cheerleaded. Yay, Babylonians, go, go, go. And then they just took over everything. They lived in the... Israelites' house. These were the Edomites. And that's what's got to them here in Psalm 137. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did. It was our brothers. That was the cry I heard in Croatia over and over again. When the Serbians, who they'd lived with for 500 years, their brothers intermarried, had businesses with, turned against them. It was our brothers. It wasn't the fact that they had done what they did. It was the sense of betrayal because this was family. And there is a special pain when somebody in the family turns against you. There is a special pain when somebody betrays you that is the family, right? And you can lose your joy right there. What about the guy tree, the relationship tree? When these people arrived, they were sort of divorced from all the rules and regulations, but the rabbis that had been taken away with them tried to get this going, and there were rules for their relationships. There were rules to their marriages, They had arranged marriages. They were not supposed to marry a Babylonian, for example. They were not supposed to marry outside of Israel. And even though they were in captivity, these rules and regulations were still kept going. And you know, there's one place that people lose their joy, and some of us lose our joy, and that's in a wrong relationship. And it might not be that the Babylonian in question isn't a very nice Babylonian and a very kind Babylonian. I find that some Babylonians are a lot nicer than some Israelites. And yet, however nice and however lovely, you are not supposed to marry outside of Israel. You're not even supposed to marry a nice Babylonian, however nice. And you can lose your joy right there. In Corinthians 7, Paul says, consider staying single. When I was talking to the singles conference, I posed that. (laughs) Consider staying single. I didn't get a very good response. (laughs) How could you ask us to do that, Jill? I'm not. God is, perhaps. Consider staying single for the sake of the kingdom. There are some eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom's sake who have made themselves eunuchs. There are some single people who say, I think God's calling me to the boondocks or to a dangerous situation. I don't think it's appropriate that I get married and take my wife and children in there. I'll do it because I believe that's what God wants me to do. I think of Amy Carmichael who had the chance to get married and was moving in that direction 
the head of a mission. She fell in love with him and he fell in love with her, but he was called to Africa and she was called to India. And in the end, she wrote and said, it isn't a question of it being right and it isn't a question of it being wrong. God has something different for both of us. God has something different for both of us. Consider being single. That's what Isaiah was teaching the people. Consider being single for the Lord's sake. And if not, make sure you have an arranged marriage, arranged by him. This way you won't lose your jury. Don't dare to arrange it yourself. We had a visit from a doctor friend of ours from India. He doesn't have an arranged marriage himself. His parents did. But I asked him about the arranged marriages back in India. And he said, well, most of my friends have them. And when I went to speak there, they asked me to go and do family life seminars right across India. And I was just about to do my first. And somebody said, has anybody told you that all the people here have arranged marriages? And I said, no. Nobody bothered telling me about that. And I looked at this material that I had brought, and of course, it went out the window. It was totally unsuitable. It just didn't even relate. And uh, Plus the fact that I didn't really understand about arranged marriages and what it was all about. I do now. I think when you get old enough to have teenagers, you wish you were <laughs> living in a country like that and you could do the arranging. At least that's what I felt. Not too bad an idea at all. And it isn't too bad an idea. I said to him the other day, what's, what's good about it? He said, well, one good thing is that you go into it without any expectations. He said, you have such unrealistic expectations here for relationships because it's born of the Hollywood love eros image that you get from your soap operas. And so there are so many expectations and then you're disappointed. Unrealistic expectations. And so we talked about this, but you know, God would arrange marriage. I believe it. He wants to do that. If we dare to let him. If we dare to let him. Make a list of everything you desire. Get on your knees. Take that list and let it fall into the hands of Jesus and leave it to him. Let him arrange it. Or rearrange it and say, no, we won't have a marriage. Consider staying single. And if God should gift you with a regenerate family, and he has gifted you with a regenerate family, make sure you realize that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Realize, as it says in Corinthians, that there is a gift of a regenerate family and there is a gift of singleness. Singleness is a gift just as surely as marriage is a gift. And you'll lose your joy if, as Paul says, you want the gift that he hasn't given you at this particular time. I mean, it's very rude if somebody gives you a gift to throw it back in his face and say, I don't want it. And yet that's what most of us do. And what we need to do is to wait on the Lord and leave it with him. And then the last one I have chance to tell you about, it's the geriatric tree. <laughs> I have to do this because, you see, Isaiah was old. He was old. He was old. And yet he was going, he was going, he was going. Stu and I just separated out the letters we got from our friends who are old, really old. And we kept them in a pile, and I'm going to read them through this year because they are the most dynamic, fantastic letters. I cannot tell you. Some of our people that we've spent our lives with, some of the leaders of the mission, some of the people that we worked with in England are in their 70s, 80s, and one is in their 90s. 
They are still trucking around this world for Jesus. One of them's on a cane and one's in a wheelchair and it doesn't make any difference. They are incredibly full of the joy of the Lord and they are dying with their boots on. And it is so exciting to be around people like that, people like Isaiah. And and it gets harder, just physically harder to run and not be weary and walk and not faint. I stayed with a friend of mine who runs Christa Ministries. They invited me to go. And he builds, he has many ministries in, in Christa, but one of them is managed care for older people. He has a thousand beds in these beautiful homes. And the women and men are all at different stages. Some are managed, you know what I mean? Some are under total care, some are looking after themselves, and some are just like a little flat and and they can have their family there and everything else. So they're all at different stages. So while I was there, he opened the newest home, and I went over it as well as everything else, and it was fabulous. And he sat down next to this little lady, and because they'd had this party to open it, and all the big knobs were there. So he sat down to this little new resident, and he said, Hello, he said, do you know who I am? And she said, No, but if you ask at the desk, they'll tell you. (laughs) I nearly fell off my chair. I thought that was hysterical. (laughs) I wish you'd seen his face. I said, she thinks you don't know who you are. You better go and find out. But you know, even as we went around, he said to me, I want you to come and meet Mrs. So-and-so, and I want you to meet so-and-so. And these are veteran Christians. They have spent all their life in the Seattle area or in California or somewhere, and they've been heads of missions or missionaries. And many, many Christian believers are finding their way into this Christian settlement for their last days. And just having a cup of tea with a few of these believers, they just had a Bible study, and they were going to their art class and something else, I don't know. But I tell you, I sat there, and they sang me a song. They sang me a song. It was a song of hope. They told me about how they were waiting on the Lord and what God had said to them, and they'd just done this little Bible reading, and it was just such a joy. And I thought, what a picture. The eagle is a symbol of age. They say the eagle never dies. And under the wings of their lives is the Spirit of God. And they're still doing it. They're soaring up above their problems. They are running and they're not being weary. They are walking and they are not fainting. And I can certainly testify to the power of the Spirit of God when I am absolutely exhausted and I have to get up once more and give out. And I just sit there like I did on this third time yesterday and I said, Lord... I am spent, but just do it again, do it again. And it was incredible, just the wind of the Spirit just took me. It's all true. It is all, all true. If you you depend, if you hang your weakness on his strength, if you just call, appropriate the power of the Spirit, then he comes and he energizes. And you run and you're not weary. And you walk and you're not faint. So I don't know where you lost your joy. May I respectfully suggest you put up your hand, take down your harp, and start singing a song. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. It's an incredible thing that Isaiah preached this sermon. Comfort, comfort ye my people. 
to people sitting by the waters of Babylon, slaves in a foreign land. And yet, Lord, we think of the Babylonians that were watching and how you had died for every Babylonian as well as you died for every Israelite and how you wanted so much that your people, even in their extremity, would reach out and lead those Babylonians to Jehovah, to God. Help us to realize, Lord, that we have a responsibility. Help us to cope with hope. Help us to run into your arms and to go to that refuge and find you waiting there. And here you say you should have come sooner. And lift us, Lord. Touch us, Lord. Give us a song to sing, whether in major key or minor. And give us the strength to sing it. We ask it for your sake and in your name. Amen.